Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Growing Up Girls Report Book Club. I am so excited today to be introducing you to an author we haven't spoken to before. This is Ashley Collagen Blunt about her new book, which is hilarious, called How to Be Australian. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me here today. Oh, it's so lovely to, to meet you, even though it is online. And I have to say, before we get into it, talk to me about your iced bogo <laughs> earrings. They're gorgeous. They're very glittery. I don't know if you can see the glitter on, on the recording. But uh, basically, when I did my book launch, uh, there's a joke about iced bogos in, in the book, because there has to be. And uh, there, uh, when I did my book launch, one of the people who attended it emailed me afterwards to say, to let me know about these earrings and to say, you have to get these. And I absolutely agreed with her and I ordered them immediately. They're from a company in Brisbane. And uh, uh, they're now my personal brand. They're just like the, the thematic um, representation of the book in earring form. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And I, uh, I wonder, do they also do Tim Tams and Kingstons or do they just do Ice Fobos? They have a bunch of Australiana, but I don't think Tim Tams and Kingstons. I did, though, someone else, another reader, got in touch with me to let me know about uh, uh, caramel slice earrings from a different company. Oh. So I also have those. They're not as sparkly, though. They're, they're a little bit more subdued, so they're more for, for more formal events. Right. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, I love them. I absolutely <laughs> love them. Thank you. Now, now, Ashley, this book is is such a great read. I uh, I found it incredibly entertaining, and it is such a, a really a hilarious look, I suppose, at the process of of becoming an Australian and uh, observing all of our peculiarities, which they are, let's be honest, and some of our weirdness. <laughs> and that's on the surface; it's very, very entertaining. But to me, it was actually a, a lot deeper than that. It was a very interesting look at, I suppose what defines a home, uh, the dance we all do in long-term relationships and marriage. And I, I, I thank you for that because uh, you, you, didn't, you didn't sort of, you know, sugarcoat it, which I thought was uh, very, very refreshing. But I also wonder, before we get into it, if you could maybe give our, our, everyone who's listening a bit of an overview of the story or the memoir. Because it's, it's a memoir, isn't it? Yes, it's, yes. Yeah, it's memoir. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for your very kind words. Uh, basically, the story starts, it starts as a little bit of a prologue where we, we start off in Winnipeg, just so people, readers can experience a minus 40 day in Winnipeg and what sort of, what sort of pushed me out of that place where, where my family still lives. Um, and so my new husband, we're sort of newly married. We arrive in Australia. It's 2011. It took me eight years prior to us getting married for to convince him to, to move abroad with me. And and then the book is basically we arrive on a one year visa. We think we think we're going to stay a year because like I said, it took me eight years to convince him to leave Winnipeg. I assumed that at the end of our year here, he would be like, okay, that was good. Now we've done it. Now we're moving back to Canada, not Winnipeg. That was the deal. Um but then at the end of the year, he was like, well, I have a great job. I'm, you know, it's, it's great here. My work is going to, you know, put me through for a work visa. Like, well, let's, let's stay a while longer. And I was really surprised to discover that I was the one who said, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I want to do that. It wasn't because I want to race back to Canada, but I'd been living, I'd been moving every year for several years in a row. I'd lived in Korea for a year. I'd lived in uh, Peru and then I'd lived in Mexico and then I'd gone back to Winnipeg for a year to get married. And so at that point, I was just like in this pattern of we go somewhere, we experience, we pick up and we leave. And the idea of staying somewhere was suddenly very intimidating 
for me. And I, that was tied up with being newly married. And obviously I am still in Australia. So the book tells the story of how I, how I came to terms with that. Yeah, no, that, that is fantastic. And was it therapeutic writing the book? Because the book, I, correct me if I'm wrong, it takes place sort of over a, a five-year period, five to ten-year, five-year period really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, to 2016, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I've been here 10 years now, but the book yeah. ends in 2016. Um, it was it was therapeutic, I, I think in the sense that in a couple of ways. One was that it was so great to put down my feelings about Australia and sit there and work through them. Like it was such a, it was such a great process to do that. And by the time we had the citizenship ceremony, I had already started, um, started writing the book. So that was really, that was really lovely to be able to experience that from, from those two perspectives, from the perspective of like, Oh, this is my life and I'm having this great event, but also from the perspective of, you know, how am I going to include this and shape this into, into part of the book? Uh, whereas most of what's written about in the book was sort of happened prior to me deciding to write it. So it was, I guess I experienced more organically, you could say. Uh, but also it was very therapeutic because while I was writing this book, I ended up getting diagnosed with a chronic illness. And so because I'd already started this project and because it was a, a humorous project and I'd invested a lot of time and energy into, into writing jokes, when I was very, very sick and I was home alone uh, all day, day after day, often I could only, you know, work for 15 or 30 minutes. So to get to sit down and engage with this particular project, that was actually, that was really therapeutic. Uh, it sort of, reminded me about who I was and who I wanted to be. And, and that really got me through some, some really hard months. Oh, look, I'm so, I'm so pleased to hear that it was, it was so helpful. Um, and I, I know we, we spoke earlier that uh, we've had chronic illness in our family as well. And I, I know that there's something really powerful about having a project and a goal, even when you're feeling shocking, let's be honest. And um, that sounds like the book was for you. So that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so pleased that helped. But, but what I thought was, um, was interesting, we started at the beginning, that, you know, that you opened in that scene, I think it was a minus 40 degrees, which is basically minus 40 degrees celsius equals minus 40 degree fahrenheit am i, am I, I right think minus, something like minus 43 is exactly equal yeah anyway it's bloody cold let's be honest yes. shocking absolutely shocking absolutely shocking so so i wonder why is it that you chose australia was it because it's sunshine and blue skies and that's what everyone thinks about when you think about australia i mean there are so many other countries you could have chosen to to move to what was it that got you over the line to come here To be honest, Australia was never my first choice because of this myth that I had that Australia and Canada were pretty much the same culturally, which is one of the things I I explore in the book, right? I arrive with this sort of very naive, like, oh, it's just, it's just hot Canada. Like it's not, it's going to be basically, yeah, yeah. Like why would it, why would it be so different? Of course, of course that was wrong, but it's just because I've really never invested any a lot of thought into it, but I, I really wanted to continue living abroad. I'd been like, I love Canada, but, uh, a, the weather is terrible, but B, I'm also just really interested in other cultures and experiencing them in a really deep, deep way. So that's why I'd gone and worked in Asia and Latin America. And so I wanted to keep doing that. And so when I got, but when I got married, it was this sort of like, okay, now I'm not making this decision alone. I have to do something that'll work for my partner. And so he, his condition was that we moved somewhere English speaking okay. and, and Australia sort of, I want to be somewhere warm, somewhere with beaches. He wanted to be somewhere English speaking. So that, that, that equated to Australia basically, which, and which worked out wonderfully. And then 
visa-wise, I applied for a master's degree here and that's how we ended up in Sydney specifically. Yeah, no, very good. That makes complete sense. Now, one of my favourite parts of the book really is is some of the cultural misunderstandings. I, I'm sorry, and I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you and laughing at us as well because we've got our own sort of crazy happening here. Mm. Can you share with me your, I suppose, the, the, your favourite one or the, or the one that you, you struggled with the most when you first arrived? I mean, there's lots of little ones. There's lots of things like we bought what we thought was a chocolate bun and was very much not a chocolate bun and when we first particularly for Steve trying to order a coffee because he's used to American style drip coffee yeah so you know I I loved cappuccino so that was fine but he he was very thrown by ordering a coffee here for the first little while but I think one of the ones that really I knew about sexually but still I still sometimes struggle to adjust to is direct speech. There's a spectrum. There's like a scale of how direct, um, like basically different countries are in terms of their speaking with each other, which obviously varies depending on the situation. Um, but you can think about, you know, the America and Germany and uh, Ru- like Russia as being very, very direct. Like what they say is what they mean, mm. in, like in most contexts, whereas somewhere like uh, Japan or in the Middle East, it's very, very indirect. Um, I found that in Korea, like everything was very coded. You had to really look at the context to figure out what someone was actually saying to you. And so I knew that uh, the the UK is much more indirect on that spectrum. I knew that Australia was more indirect than Canada. We're influenced by America, whereas Australia is still far more English. Despite knowing that as a fact, I still really struggled to pick up when people were saying one thing and meaning another. And I and I use the example in, in the book with my with my thesis supervisor who was always saying things to me that I just took at face value because that's how a Canadian, you know, thesis supervisor would have communicated. But, but that was, that was not what she meant. She, <laughs> I had to go away often and, and really think about, oh, so what's she actually saying to me? You had to decode us. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And I still do. And I still do because I still, I still read things through my Canadian mindset. So I, it's easier now, but I have to sometimes remind myself, oh, right, this is, what are they actually saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe we can talk about that relationship with your, your, your was it your professor? Your university yeah, professor my thesis university. supervisor, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. So because you you, re- you recall a story in the book where I think you just received the mark back for your first assessment as part of your master's course and you weren't very happy. To be honest, I thought the mark was actually quite good just by the way, but you weren't happy. And so you set up this meeting with her and you went in and you, and you explained to her that in your bachelor's degree um, back in Canada, you actually had done very well. You'd won the university medal, which is all incredibly important information to share, but you just couldn't quite understand at the time why she didn't really warm to you and why the meeting didn't go so well. And I think it was your friend, Noelle, who you debriefed with afterwards, who basically explained that, you know, we just do not speak about ourselves like like that here. It's almost shunned to be so overt, I suppose. Yeah. yeah that was something that was a bit of an issue. Yeah. And I've, I've, uh, I know someone here who uses the term self-promoter when she's speaking about people and she, she says it like it's just the dirtiest, worst thing you could possibly be. Uh, and this, so yeah. that I, I hear her voice in my head sometimes and I'm like trying to, trying to adjust because, again, this is a thing I know is a fact, but I have 
to adjust. And I'm never quite sure how to how to hit that, particularly like with promoting this book, like I'm overtly yes. promoting the book, but at the same time, I need to talk, talk myself down a bit. And, the, and walking that line is very difficult. But but at, so this was my very first few months here, I had no idea about any of this. Uh, and so you know, when I talked to her, I was just trying to give her context for uh, t- the type of student that I was and, and, and why I was struggling so much because Australia grades much, much harder than North America. So actually when N- North Americans submit their transcripts for, uh, to Australian universities, Australian universities will, um, basically bring their marks down to, to adjust them to Australian standards. Like they, because right. North America over marks, I didn't know that at the time either. So when I got a credit, I was just like, what is this? Clearly I am failing horribly. No. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, she, so I tried to go and when I met with her and give her context for, for, for what I was feeling and, and to explain that I like, clearly I needed help because I didn't know what I was doing. And, and that, that didn't go well. That worked, that worked against me. <laughs> that did work against you. But I suppose one of the other things that uh, did cause you a little grief was, um, was I suppose, the banter, as you say, you know, this, this not saying what we mean. And, and, and our banter in Australia can often be a little harsh. And when I was reading some of the stories you were sharing, it was a bit of an aha moment for me because I thought, oh, gosh, yes, an outsider would think we're actually incredibly cruel. But you shared this story of when, um, excuse me, you and your husband Steve go to I think it was Steve's first Toastmasters meeting Mm -hmm. and you give a speech and Steve gives a speech and it's all going swimmingly well. And uh, I think it's Bert who's in charge and runs the club basically at the end of it, basically commends you on your speech, but then makes a jibe about your accent. Now, you are completely devastated about this, so much so that you actually have to just leave instantly. And you're really, really upset and offended. But then I think, you know, you, you debrief with Steve and, and, you, and you come to the realisation that we're, we don't mean to be mean. And in many ways, it's a sign of endearment. Yeah, and Steve adjusted to that quicker. I think one being being a guy, I think it's a little bit easier. I think guys are more used to that. But then also he was working with Australians. Like he was in an Australian office where like most most of his colleagues were Aussie born and raised. Sure. So I think he he had been immersed in that a lot faster than me. Whereas in my master's program, almost all of the students were international students. And then obviously the professors aren't gonna make those kind of jabs about students. It just wouldn't be appropriate. So I, I wasn't experienced in that the way Steve was at that time. And yeah, I, I, I found that really, really hard. And I think it's partly because it's not that Canadians don't do that, but Canadians will signal that they're joking uh, through their, their body language, particularly mm-hmm. they'll smile a lot. And I notice now like when I'm out with Canadians, just how much easier it is because I'm never questioning. Whereas with Aussies and if I, you know, go out with English friends, I'm always sort of being like, wait, are they joking? Was that a joke? What about that one? So it's, 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 it was very challenging for me at the start. And I still, again, it's another thing I still am finding like, I have to think, I have to put that extra work in to, to, to decode. Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand because we are really quite talented at what my husband and I refer to as the deadpan delivery. And oh. even to this and even to this day, we have four boys, as I think you know, and my 17-year-old son still gets my husband and he'll come in and he'll, he'll say something which is cheeky or banterous. And even my, you know, 53-year-old husband still has to work out, you know, is he having a go? Is he being serious? So, and he has got the best deadpan delivery out of everyone. So it's a bit of a, we, we are unusual in that. I, 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 I've realized that during reading the book. So, um, 
So thank you for bringing that to my attention. Now, the other thing which I, I did find a little entertaining is this concept of the terror trinity. So the snakes, the spiders and the sharks. And so when you announced to your friends back and family back in Canada, they were just appalled to think that you would need to come and navigate these nasties and how are you ever going to survive and come back alive, basically. Um, how are you going with, uh, well, I suppose you don't, you don't like the water very much and I don't, I, I don't go in much myself. So sharks probably aren't the biggest issue, but snakes and spiders, any improvement there? I I really want to encounter like I really want to have a snake encounter because like some people have these great stories about their snake encounters and I like I would like to have a story like that. This so snakes still still waiting. Sure. Spiders spiders mm. I you know I've never liked spiders but then so so many Canadians ask me about them in such a way that I actually like started to have nightmares about the spiders even though I hadn't encountered you know a big one yet in Australia. Um, the more stories I hear, the more I just like, that's the one thing that's the one thing that I still like struggle with. Um, I just learned, I've been here 10 years. You'd think after 10 years, I would have heard, you know, know all this, like, know all the stories and all the things to be aware of. But I just learned last week about, um, the exploding spider babies. Do you know about? I actually don't even know about those. Please share. Oh my gosh. So this, um, someone from Toronto was telling me that she, they had, you know, they had a sizable spider in their house and they killed it. And actually her husband had sort of stabbed it with the tip of an umbrella just because he happened to have that in his hand and killed the spider. But then thousands of baby spiders just exploded oh out from it and started like running oh. everywhere. Oh. And they were like, what is this? And so she was telling her Aussie colleagues about this at work the next day. And one of them said, oh, well, that's why you never, you never kill a spider like that in Australia. You've got to either spray them or get the bowl or whatever for that reason. And she said that like, oh, everybody knows, everybody knows that. Like, that's just a thing about spiders. But also I thought spiders don't have babies. They have like, they lay eggs. So we looked this up. Wolf spiders. It's a particular kind of spider. Okay. They the the mother spider carries the egg sac on her, and then when the babies hatch, they all live on her. Like she, I don't know how this poor mother like walks around with thousands of how babies. Exhausting. Yeah, literally riding on her. But this is a thing where if there's videos online. You can go watch it. If you kill them, if you squish them, the babies all run. Oh. Now, the one redeeming fact about this is apparently if they're still living on the mother, that means they can't actually survive on their own. I don't quite know how that works biologically, but so they will just run off into your house and die somewhere. You're not okay. going to have thousands of wolf spiders growing up in in the crevices of your of your Excellent. home. I'm very, very pleased to hear that. I had never heard that story. So thank you. Thank you. And, and sorry, just clarifying that wolf spider of which you speak is an Australian spider. Uh it, yes, I don't know if it's exclusively Australian, but it's definitely here. Definitely here. Okay. Okay, people, look out for the wolf spider. Look out for the wolf spider. Now, the other thing, Ashley, which I, I actually really want to thank you for is the honesty with which you talk about your struggle with anxiety and depression during the book. Again, I appreciate the fact that this just isn't sort of a, a glossy Pollyanna view on the five years in Australia. You're very, very honest because I mean, one of the best things we can do is talk about it, destigmatize it, because it is part of, you know, most you know, most humans will engage and, and experience, you know, anxiety and depression at some stage in their lives. So thank you for that. Um, can I ask, looking back at that that five year period now, with I suppose the benefit of another five years, was that was that confronting, you know, re reliving that? Uh, or was it was it helpful? I think it was 
helpful is a bit tricky. I think it was helpful to think about, you know, how bad things got and how, sure. how much better they were. So that was certainly helpful. It wasn't confronting in the sense that in the telling of it, as, as in like, these are facts, like these things are facts that happened to me. I think for some reason, it's easier to write that to the, you know, to the computer because the audience isn't there in front of you. So there were things in there that I hadn't, for example, talked about with my parents just because I'd never known how to bring it. It wasn't that I was explicitly hiding it. I just didn't know how to bring it up, but I could talk, I could write about it. I think what was most confronting was, you know, that thing in writing the showing versus telling, putting it into a scene. So then specifically choosing, uh, experiences and trying to recreate them on the page. That was one of the most difficult parts of the book to write. Uh, and I, and I struggled with, with that. So there's a few, there's a few scenes in the book where I'm trying to show how bad things had gotten. Those, those were hard to write. Yeah, I bet they were. I bet they were. Uh, I know that you saw uh, a psychologist through, was it Sydney Uni at that stage? Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was very interesting that one of the strategies she gave you was this concept of a worry box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's a. Do you mind sharing that? Because I just think that's something that people could take away today and maybe use in their lives. It's a cognitive behavioral therapy technique and uh, it was one of many, but I thought it was the most, it was symbolically representative of sort of that, that uh, set of techniques that she, she gave me. And basically you, um, it's, it's, it's a process of starting to notice your worries and, and catalog them. So you start by when, when they crop up, you, you write them down on a piece of paper, which is the, which is the worry box. And, and you, you train yourself to say, I don't have to worry about that now. I'm going to set aside, I'm going to set aside 15 minutes later to, to think through these things and worry about them. And then basically as, as you adjust to that process, then you, that 15 minutes, you reduce that and eventually you just get rid of that. And, and that trains you to say like, if you're, if you're starting to worry, you're starting to feel anxious, you're starting to go into that spiral to stop, notice it, set it aside and move on. And it's something that you know, easy to say, hard to do, but with, with practice, I actually found, I was surprised how much it helped. Excellent. Very, very pleased to hear that. Towards the end of the first year, Steve suggests applying for a work visa. Now, this is at a stage where you're not really loving Australia, but he is. He's he's going so well at work. He's made some new friends. He's got promotions and it's all going swimmingly. And uh, and you, you flip out over this because you really think you need to go home. But you do a lot of soul searching and then you come to this realization that you know how to move, but you don't know how to stay, which I thought was so interesting because for me, this is when the whole concept of, you know, being an adult comes into play, you know, learning how to, to, to make a home, to make a nest, uh, learning just to stick it out, I suppose, for one of a word, to be sticky. Am I on the right track here? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's very much at the heart of the book is that, is that, Moving from so what's called the Odyssey phase of life, which is that sort of you're you're a young adult basically. You've now suddenly got all that freedom to make all those choices for yourself, and I love that. As a kid, I always wanted to be an adult. Like I just couldn't wait, and I lived at home with my parents until I finished uh, my bachelor's degree. And so as soon as I finished my bachelor's degree, I moved from their house to South Korea. Like I was just like, let me just oh, wow. go and have like a huge adventure and and like try all these things and. And I loved, I loved that. I loved that. And if it hadn't been for Steve and also loving him very deeply, 
I think I would have just kept, I suppose I spent all of my 20s just moving to new countries. I was teaching English. So it was very easy to, to like find jobs and, and get visas for that reason. And I had a plan where I, you know, wanted to live on every continent and experience, you know, all these different cultures. And that was so enriching and so wonderful. And I learned so much from, you know, all the people I, I encountered. And, but there's something, there's something very easy about that because mm. you're not putting down roots. You're not like, even with your friendships, like you make great friendships, but you also, it's easy because you're, you know, that at, there's a, there's a cutoff date that you're going to leave. You're going to have a going away party and you can, then you can decide, well, you know, who do I want to keep in touch with and who am I happy to say goodbye to? Mm. And and you're so it keeps you busy because you're always like learning about the new place and oh, I've got to go do all the tourist things and I've got to go travel around to all the you know all the nearby places and by the end of that process it's like oh, I've got to pack up everything and I've got to sort out my visa for the new place so you, it keeps you busy in this way yes. that suddenly when you're saying oh well let's just stay in one place now yeah. it's like okay so what do I I've seen all the tourist stuff here yeah now what do I feel? what do I do now yeah and like, oh, do I actually have to sit and talk to people about bathroom renovations and 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 mortgages and all these adult things that I like explicitly have been avoiding because all of the friends I made in all these countries are are expats and people involved in the expat community who aren't doing those things. You know, they're telling me about all their trips and they're telling me where they're going to move next. And, and it's the locals who are sharing their culture with me. So it's, you know, when you stay somewhere, the conversations are very different. The lifestyle is very different. The choices you have to make suddenly are, you know, much more permanent in there, you know, like, of course. yeah. So that was, yeah. that was, that was, and, and also that fear of if we put down deep roots and then later we do have to leave. How, what will that process look like? It's very hard. Being an adult is very hard. Yeah. It is very hard. Absolutely, absolutely. So I was also interested to learn from the book that you have Armenian heritage. And fortuitously, when you first arrived at, at, at Sydney Uni, you made this fast friend in a, a lovely girl called Annie who also had Armenian heritage. And through your relationship with her and her family, it was a really great opportunity for you to explore your family history and to also do a deep dive into the Armenian genocide, which I think you ended up focusing on for your master's degree. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, both my master's yeah. degrees. Actually, I wrote, I wrote theses about the Armenian genocide. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a book. Did you also issued a book last year? Let's have a look at that. Yeah, one. so this is My name is Revenge. This is my first book, My Name is Revenge, and it is a combination of fiction and nonfiction and essays. So the fiction is a novella that starts uh there was a, in December 1980, there was an assassination in the eastern suburbs in Vaucluse. The Turkish consul general and his bodyguard were assassinated and killed by a, um, an Armenian terrorist group. They, they, um, the group uh, called the radio station to acknowledge the, that they were behind it. Um, those men have never been caught. They, there was a manhunt. It was Australia's biggest manhunt at the time. Uh, this was this was the first really big act of international terrorism in Australia. And there's still a million dollar reward out for information leading to oh, to wow. their conviction. It will be the 40th anniversary of that crime uh, this December. So I I was interested in the fact that, that that act was connected to a series of attacks that went on for about 20 years around the world. Uh, there was about 200 different actions, as the CIA refers to them. Uh, assassinations and bombings uh, targeting Turkish diplomats, which goes back to the Armenian genocide of World War One, which was the uh, sort of blueprints for the Holocaust. 
Uh, the key difference being that the, the Turkish government has never acknowledged their responsibility, the Ottoman Empire's responsibility uh, for for those for the you know those events, and so the these terrorist actions in the seventies and eighties were Armenians reacting to that ongoing denial and trying to force Turkey to try to force the government to to. Um, to acknowledge uh, that history, which of course backfired horribly. It was a terrible plan morally and even just strategically. It was a terrible plan. Um, So I was really interested in the fact that although it was really well known at the time when it happened in in 1980, a lot of Australians don't remember it or don't know about it and haven't heard of it. Mm. And, and, and obviously haven't heard of the history of the genocide either. So I thought, well, how can I get them really people really interested in this history? So I wrote a, I wrote a, it's a, a thriller novella that basically starts with that assassination and imagines the people who could have been involved with it. And then the essays at the back of the book, uh, so it's like, it's really fast paced and it's really, you know, sort of, um, edge of your seat sort of story. And then at the end of that story, now you've got these essays waiting there to explain the history of the genocide. And I go into the research that I did with my family. My great grandparents were survivors of the genocide. And then, um, I spent a couple months, um, interviewing people in Armenia. And then I also connected with, with Annie and with the Armenian community here in Sydney. And so I share some of their experiences as well. And so I love that like Annie appears in how to be Australian. And so she sort of, uh, links the two books together that way. So that, um, that makes me really happy because one of the things I was doing while I was, while I was writing this book was researching and writing about the Armenian genocide. So that was part of my, you know, what is home and what is identity and what is, what is belonging was, was learning about how, you know, the Armenian part of my family, they have that connection to Armenia, even if they've never been there. That was so interesting. I think Annie's mother also fit into that category as well. She had never been there. A lot of the Armenian diaspora is like that more and more is starting to visit now, but for a long time, it was very difficult to visit because of the Soviet Union. And then, and then the war with Azerbaijan, which right now has, has flared up again. And there, and, you know, currently Azerbaijan is attacking um, part of the Armenian community uh, in there. And uh, um, so the, the Armenian community has right now is mobilizing to, to support. They're doing fundraisers. They're doing capturing um, Azerbaijani propaganda online. Uh, so, this, so, so it's still a really big issue for Armenians today. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. But the other thing that you do is throughout the book is that you create parallels between the Armenian genocide and then the, I suppose the plight of Indigenous Aborig- uh, Indigenous Australians, rather. Yes. Yes. So. Um, I, I'm really lucky that actually um, Australian um, writer Robert Mann laid a lot of groundwork there for me. He wrote an essay called A, a Turkish Tale, uh, which was first published in the monthly. And so he has a quote in there where he talks about Australia and Turkey. And he says, in the birth of both nations, there was for another people a dreadful price to pay. And he clarifies that it's not a moral equivalence because the, you know, the Armenian genocide was very much uh, a a genocide and a a decision made and a strategic plan to wipe out the entire Armenian population uh, of of the Ottoman Empire, which was, you know, quite successful, really, from from that point of view. They wiped out 96% of the people in uh, eastern Turkey. The Armenian population was either killed or or um, forced into exile or or Turkified, which was you know given a Turkish name and identity. Um, 
But Robert Mann says the histories of both Australia and Turkey have been burdened by the shadow cast by these events. And, and I, I thought that was so, that was so true. Um, even though, it, again, the history is different in Australia. There was never that one decision made. Uh, but still the impact of colonialization on the Indigenous peoples, you know, we're, we're continually learning more and more about that. I talk about Bruce Pascoe's incredible yeah. book, Dark Got Emu, in, yeah. in How to Be Australian. Yes, Amazing. yes, exactly. So books books like that, we're learning, we're learning how much we oh. don't know and how much has been... And again, it wasn't that there was a decision made to intentionally hide it the way in Turkey, like that was a government decision that is still ongoing. There's federal funds invested into that ongoing denial. Here, it's just that history was just inconvenient. And so it's just been pushed aside and rewritten in a more sort of organic way, which I don't, I don't know which is worse. They're both horrible. Uh, but I, so I thought it was important to obviously acknowledge um, Australia's incredible Indigenous history and its Indigenous peoples uh, in the writing of this book um, and engage with their stories mm-hmm. to some degree. I do. I, I share the story of a really fascinating Gamilaroi man who I was felt so lucky to get to, to speak to for the book and share his story in the book because he touched me in a really uh, in a really profound way through his yeah, through his own amazing. art. It was an amazing story, actually. I um, love that. I've been trying to Google him and find out yeah. where he is. <laughs> oh yes, so he has. So this is his name is uh, Matty Shields, and you can see he was on Australia's Got Talent. I think in 2015 he made it to the quarterfinals, and so he is an he is a um, he is a male pole dancer who does um, pole performance. Uh, but he's he competitive pole performance, which I didn't even know was a Neither thing. And but he. He so he incorporates into that aspects of contemporary Aboriginal dance, and he wanted he made sure to clarify that it's contemporary Aboriginal dance and not traditional. Um, but he and in doing that, like, and he when I saw him perform, it was for a, a non Australia Day event, so it was Australia celebrating Australia's history on a day that was not January 26th, which I love. Uh, and he was just he was so moving, you know, performing to modern Aboriginal music. And, and that was years prior to me writing the book. And so I just happened to be telling a friend about it. And she was like, Oh, I know that guy. He, he's, he lives with my, he's roommates with my, flatmates with my, uh, with a friend of mine. And so she got me an interview with him and, and he's, he's just incredible. So I was so glad to share his story and, and in that, and in that way work towards acknowledging these two histories and, and drawing that connection because Armenians feel the same way. I shouldn't say the same way. Armenians feel very connected to the specific land that Armenia, you know, where, where Armenians have traditionally lived. And that only goes back roughly 3000 years. So in thinking about that and in speaking to them, that gave me sort of like a tiny, tiny sliver of insight into indigenous connection to land and how powerful that, that must be for them. So I think that like, effort to learn and listen and, and to try to think about different cultures and, and, and their perspectives on the world, because I don't have that at all. Like I, you know, as a military kid, we, the, the place I was born, we moved a few months later, never been back there, lived in all kinds of places growing up. So I don't have a specific connection to any particular piece of land. Now, towards the end of the book, you and Steve decide that you're going to bite the bullet, you're going to become citizens. So you do this, you do the citizenship test. Now, I didn't appreciate that it does require a bit of study and it is <laughs> remarkably detailed. I don't think I would probably pass embarrassingly. But anyway, but between the two of you, you then decide that 
you know, this, while the test was good, there probably could be a better version of the test. So you actually put together, you know, get a dinner party conversation for purposes such as these, a suggested improved citizenship test. And I just want to run through a couple of them because I just think it's quite hilarious. So the first one, pronounce these words, Cairns, Wagga Wagga, Canberra, Melbourne and Launceston. Now I know in the book you struggled with all of those words because they're quite tricky. I still say wagga wagga. Like I still like oh, I, do you? I say it out loud and then I'm like, wait, no, that was wrong. <laughs> that's hilarious. My mother was born there. I'll tell her that story. <laughs> uh, the, the second one, intimidated tourists with casual discussions of the deadness of creatures found in your backyard. Yes. I bet that still is an issue. <laughs> well, just like that spider story. <laughs> like like I, I, and I said that was a you know, someone from Toronto who was telling me that story. Um and she she delivered it with proper horror whereas an Aussie would deliver that very casually as if this was yeah, just very like, deadpan mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah your son would be perfect at it perfect I'll get him on that I'll get him on that okay number three eat a Vegemite sandwich without making that face see I don't understand that I every morning when I wake up I all I think about is my Vegemite toast every morning I have two pieces with butter I and I could probably eat it all day that's all I would want that is popsicle gray and I would be oh, fine. That's one of the most Australian things. There. No, no. It's one of the most Australian things I've ever heard. That's wonderful. Seriously, all day. It's all I would want. It's all I crave. For dinner, I'd actually, for dinner at night, sometimes I'll just have Vegemite toast and I get a cup of tea. And it's very good for you, isn't it? It has all kinds oh, of like, yes. yeah. So that's great. Vitamin B. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's it's, it's a health food. It's a health food, actually. Um, okay, number four, stride up to a swimming pool and jump in. Now that has been a journey for you, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. Actually, that was one of my, um, so the book talks about how, when I arrived here, I couldn't, I couldn't swim. Uh, and, and my husband who, um, loves me very, very much taught me how to swim despite that being against my will for much of the first part of that journey. And then I, so I, I was swimming sort of regularly, but I still getting into the pool was, was, was still a battle. So one of my 2020 goals was to um, be able to just, just do exactly that. Stride up to the pool and just jump in like, like I see so many Aussies do. And, uh, and I, and I, and I, I was doing that this summer uh, months, yeah. but now when winter came that, that slowed down a bit, there was, there was a That's lot okay. more barricading. <laughs> That's okay, because I got to tell you, I wouldn't be doing it either in winter. I wouldn't be doing it either. Okay, now this is so interesting. Number five, go for drinks with nine other people and determine the precise moment it is your shout. I have never even thought of that. It's just something that just evolves, but I suppose from an outsider's point of view, it's quite a nuanced situation. I uh, And I have a, a terrible thing where I will go out and I just want one drink, like it's, it's particularly yes. with my illness, that's usually all I can handle. And someone else will always like be on top of it and they'll get me a drink first and then I'll think, oh, well, now what do I do? Like, I'm like <laughs> I want to buy them a drink, but I don't want another drink. So how am I so I was like, how do I negotiate this? It's so, it's so tricky. <laughs> Just oh, like so drink, people. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. No, I appreciate that. Okay, attempt to beat former Prime Minister Bob Hawke's Guinness World Record for drinking a yard glass of beer in under 12 seconds. You won't succeed, but keep trying. Oh, my God, what a moment that was in Australian history. Incredible. Incredible, incredible. Okay, demonstrate competence in the making of fairy bread. Now, fairy bread's not a thing in Canada? Oh no, no, I'd never heard of it. No. Oh. And it's, and it strikes me as very strange that it's like bread, butter, sprinkles. I'm like, that's, 
<laughs> Who came up with that? It's a thing. In fact, I only made it last weekend for a family, <laughs> the family October birthday gathering, and it was highly requested. So that was, we oh. had that amongst near the meat pies, um, near the chicken sandwiches. That was, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I made probably three loaves of it, three loaves. It has to be white bread. It can't be anything healthy with seeds or grains or any nutrition. <laughs> That of course, that. That, no, no. That, yeah, that would mess up the sprinkles. Actually, 100%. when you asked about when you asked about the earrings, um, the company that makes these Mox and Co. They have they do have a fairy bread version. Oh, good. No, that's mm-hmm. excellent. Thank you. For, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Okay, go for dinner with nine people and split the bill among yourselves. Does that not happen in Canada? No. I think I think this is. I don't know if it's tied to the banking system here, which is very different. I don't know if it's tied to that they're not being tips here. So where you get much, much better service at restaurants in Canada and America, but you do tip up to 30% for that. Um, but when you go to a restaurant in Canada or America, they will say like, the, one of their first questions is like, are you paying together? Are you splitting the bill? And then they can actually like, oh, you two are paying together. Okay, well, we'll put that on one bill. And they so they sort all that out before you order oh, anything. Okay. And then and then at the end, they just bring you your your bills as, as has been organized because they have the computer technology to do that, which I assume, like I know Australia is a few years behind tech-wise or used to be, but nowadays I'm like, you have the technology to make this easy, but you refuse to. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? Like, I didn't even know that was a thing that they could have like individual sort of mini groups within a group. I didn't even mm-hmm. realize. Oh yeah, oh, there you go. yeah. So so being used to, and I appreciate, I I I do really appreciate the the um you know not necessarily tipping uh, or or only adding a you know ten percent tip in Australia is so much simpler. That's a much simpler system. We we do appreciate that all the time. We appreciate the fact that the tax is added on to the bill, which is just like our excuse me to the total. Like before you you know everywhere you go, you, yes. the tax is already rolled in, which okay makes sense. I don't have to do mental math to figure out how much I'm going to pay. Whereas in Canada, you're you know you go to, to a restaurant and you're like okay, well there's going to be fourteen percent tip and then there's yeah. or tax and then there's going to be tip and like so you you're really ballparking like how how much is this meal going to cost me uh but i i find that i i just feel like restaurants are just refusing to make it easy to split a bill like they yeah. could this day and age they could they won't they absolutely could I, i'm gonna get onto that thank you very much um and then the other one which i couldn't answer is a range from smallest to largest different glasses or beer beer glasses so mini <laughs> glass schooner pot pint seven pony handle imperial pint i had no idea about any of those to be honest i'm not a beer drinker they're they're different for different states so i've i've taken a bunch from all the different states and and put them into one so i think unless maybe you were a bartender across australia i think that would be a difficult question for anybody good because i would have failed that one Uh, (laughs) the the last one is draft a 10-step spider preparedness plan yes very good idea very good especially idea. especially now that you know about those exploding babies yes oh, I'm, I'm all over i'm gonna get getting right onto that and then then you did suggest which i thought was hilarious but i sound i seem a bit disrespectful saying that but there was a proposed essay question uh based on the harold holt memorial pool now harold holt was uh, one of our prime ministers that actually just disappeared at a beach one day never to be seen again um and you uh you wonder whether the pool's name should be you know serve as a warning uh swim carefully or you'll end up like holt or does it celebrate the wise choice of swimming in a pool as opposed to the liquid orgy of death that laps at Australia's shores. Show you I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. So Ashley, tell me, what is the one message you want people to take away from, from reading this book? 
Oh man. Wow. One message. I think there's, I think there's, I mean, one of the messages, I think when I was writing this book, it is very much a love letter to Australia and Australians. Like this, it's a book that definitely like, if you're, if you're new to Australia or, you know, I've, I've talked to people who've been here 30 years, but they still like the book reading. It reminded them of their journey. Obviously those people are going to connect with the book, which is wonderful. And I love that. But I very much wrote this book for Australians because I wanted to, sh- to, to show them like hold up a mirror and, and say like, Oh, this yeah. is, this is what like I experienced when being here. And because I was, these are a lot of the conversations I was having with Aussies and, and they were always like really engaged and really interested. They wanted to know like, Oh, well, what is a minus 40 day like? And like, what do you like about Australia? And, and so this is a, it's a love letter to Australia. It's a, it's a critical love letter. It's not, you know, it doesn't overlook a lot of these big systemic issues that, that you know, that Australia, we all need to work on addressing. But um, at the end of the day, I just think, you know, I think Australians are really hard on themselves like, and they're really hard on their country, you know, the whole cultural cringe thing. And it, I just think maybe, you know, if we all could acknowledge what's great about Australia, we could then work towards fixing what's not great. And I think that's, I think that's the big message from the book. Love it. I love it. Thank you. And I know that uh, many who read the book will as well. Um, Is there another writing project on the horizon? Or yes. are you just now having a moment? Oh, there is. Okay. Oh, are you yeah. able to share, or is it a big secret? No. Yeah. I'm. I'm uh, well, it's. I'm. I'm jumping genres. I'm sort of going back to. I'm going back to the the. So I started with the thriller in this in this book, and then so I'm sort of going back to thriller. I'm writing a, a psychological thriller set in contemporary Sydney. The book is um, connected to the dark web and to the manosphere, as it's called, so men's rights groups like men going their own way and uh, and incels and the sort of violence um, inherent to those to those groups. And the story at this point is about a woman who starts to suspect that she's dating a murderer. And now I just, I just this week finished the first draft. It's very exciting. That's exciting. Um, Now books often change a lot between their first draft and their final version. So that's what the book is about now, but it'll be interesting to see what it ends up being about. Um, But I mean, I'm in a um, sort of, um, uh, co- co- collective of prime writers with one of your um, guests, Petronella McGovern. So oh, we love Petronella. Yeah, so I've been um, using her books and looking at them in terms of, of pacing and in terms of tension. She's great at that. Oh. So she's incredible mm-hmm. at that. She's incredible. I, it's funny when I start reading one of Petronella's books, I think, okay, well, look, I'll read 50 pages and then I'll go and do some housework or I'll go and do my emails <laughs> or my paid work. And uh, before I know it, I'm 150 pages in, it's 11 o'clock. I've done nothing. I'm still in my pajamas and I blame Petronella for all that. <laughs> it's very much her fault. How dare she? How dare she? How dare she <laughs> mean that I can't do domestic tasks? No, she is, she is brilliant. Well, look, Ashley, thank you so much. It has been so lovely getting to know you. Your book is so fabulous. I highly recommend it. You've turned a mirror and a lens on us oh, and uh, made, me, made me sort of rethink some of my approaches and my banter. I'm going to pull it back a bit, particularly when I particularly when someone's not a local, I'll make sure I'm a little bit nicer to them. So uh, anyway, thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your fabulous podcast. I love it. And uh, this has been a real you know, pleasure to speak with you today and all your listeners. So uh, thank you for all your kind words. It's very, very, really touches my heart as a writer. It's like all writers want. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. And then when you your psychological thriller is done, 
come back on and we'll and we'll do a deep dive in that as well. Oh, excellent! Yeah, I know. I like. I love a fellow thriller fan, so I'll look forward to talking about it with you. Sounds really good. Anyway, lots of love and thanks again. Thank you.